I was living with chronic pelvic pain. I was lost, stuck in the same vicious circle. Yeah, I was driven by a sense of unworthiness. I was diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer. I suffered from high blood pressure, heartbroken from a devastating divorce. My son suddenly and tragically passed away. And I was panicking. Lack of sleeping. Going nowhere. Hopeless and lost. Angry with God. Trapped in my own mind. But God. But God. But God. But God. But God. Heals. Restored. Gave me the strength. He showed me that I'm worthy. Spoke to me. God saw me in this time of need. I was healed by his straps. I am able to walk into any room with no fear. I can count on him. I now experience a deeper peace. I can celebrate the goodness of God. When he takes care of his kids, he takes care of his kids. Faith empowers us with peace and hope despite what we're facing. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I love those videos every single time. Um, I love the stories. I love particularly the, the powerful ones, obviously the ones where God has come in and done something really amazing. Um, but as you're going to see, as we look at one of the most incredible stories in Scripture, it might be worth our while to, not just in that video, but in life generally, start paying a little more attention to the testimonies where there wasn't some big powerful thing that happened where the healing's not yet clearly come through, where the loss is still felt acutely, uh, and yet somehow, mysteriously, beautifully, God has done something anyway in the heart of the person who you'd expect should be broken by what they've experienced, but, but somehow isn't. Those more subtle, less sort of black and white, it was terrible, now it's awesome testimonies, are actually the ones that should be most interesting to us, uh, as we're going to see in just a moment. Um, I'm really excited for this preach. I'm really excited to end this series on what I think is going to be an amazing note. Um, and so I've been really asking God to um, ensure that there's a message for every single one of us in this crazy story uh, that involves a bit of a disgruntled, depressed dude, very impressive experiences with God, uh, and then it comes down to quite an amazing and, and, and unexpected climax in their, in their encounter with one another. Uh, but before we get into the story, uh, I'm just quite excited, and I just want to tell you all, for Kloof specifically, the site that I'm from, uh, next Sunday, we're back to normal. We're back to doing our own thing. So uh, we've been like everyone involved in the But God series together and been doing pop-up church uh, at different times. But next Sunday morning, Kloof will be back together at Country Club um, doing, doing church in the way that we, we love to and that we've missed doing. So um, for any Kloofies who are listening to this, I'm looking forward to seeing you next Sunday at KCC. And I know the Florida Road has some cool plans as well for next week as we start to, to break open um, the new way we do church in person for hopefully as long as, as possible. Um, I spent this last weekend all on my own, uh, just so that you have some context for where I'm coming from as we begin to chat this morning. My wife, Byrne, and my, my kids, my littlest one, Beth, who's one, and my, my very big one, David, who's three and a half, um, have headed off to the free state to spend the long weekend uh, with Byrne's family. And so my home has become very quiet. Um, and I've been really looking forward to that, and that has been good for a bunch of reasons, but as you could probably imagine, you miss the noise so much more than you think you would um, when, when you're in the, in the midst of it. I keep thinking, oh, imagine, imagine I could just have a weekend to do what I want. That'd be incredible. And then the second you have that, you kind of wish they'd all be back. And I'm pouring over the little videos I get sent of the, of the rubbish and nonsense that my kids are getting up to. Uh, and I miss my wife a heck of a lot. However, in the space uh, and in the kind of quiet and solitude of this weekend, um, I have had a chance to 
to think about some stuff which I'm really grateful for, for the sake of this preach. One of the things, though, that's not particularly profound, the great um, marriage guru and parenting advisor, Michael McIntyre, he says the following. He says, um, most of marriage is basically standing in different rooms from one another going, what did you just say? Um, And there's this kind of classic thing that happens in almost every marriage, and Bern, my wife, is absolutely guilty of this, uh, is, is to go, hey, love, I just want to tell you this. And then, and then with her head in the dishwasher, she's supposed to be trying to tell me the rest of this really important information, which, if you think that's a deep crime, uh, apparently I'm guilty of mumbling a whole lot, which is something that I'm pretty sure only old men do, so it can't be true um, that, that I would do that. But, I mean, jokes aside, the way we communicate with one another uh, is interesting because when you're anticipating being married, you assume that there'll be all these wonderful sort of gentle, intimate, romantic kind of looks and glances and comments, uh, and they do happen, but, but a lot less than you might think. Uh, and there's quite a lot of admin going on in most homes and quite a lot of shouting from one room to the next, saying, what was it you said? What did you want me to bring again? I just brought, what? Um, and the, the intimacy, the, the, that sort of special communication that you assume will be lots of, the big part of marriage, you really have to choose it. You really have to fight for it. Uh, it doesn't just happen automatically. On the other end of the spectrum of sort of shouting administrative domestic uh, instructions to one another down the passage, um, I remember as a varsity student, long before I was married, uh, I used to occasionally make an appearance uh, at the nightclub in Peter Marisburg. I was, a, I was a, a student there, and when I say the nightclub in Peter Marisburg, anyone who's lived in Peter Marisburg will understand there is only one. There has only ever been one. Um, and so I would go to the nightclub of Peter Marisburg. doesn't matter if they burn it down or whatever. Crowded House was always the place that we went. And um, I was maybe wisely, maybe self-importantly, quite keen not to drink when I went to that nightclub. I don't know, maybe that was both a good idea and also slightly stuck-up Christianness. But I was there trying to have a good time uh, with my glass of water. Um, and so in many ways, I think I was just embarrassing and, and would have stuck out if I think back to it now. But one of the things I remember that was most exciting about those nights at the, at the nightclub uh, and I was the guy taking the dancing far too seriously because I didn't understand actually what everyone was really going there for. Um, Although I do feel like sometimes when I drive past nightclubs and I see all these people queuing who maybe do think they know what they're going there for, I do feel like telling them, like, it's not in there. (laughs) The thing you think you're going there for is not actually there. But anyway, uh, I wasn't even sure what I was supposed to want out of the nightclubs. But the thing that used to strike me most, the thing I still remember, is there's this interesting feature in a loud nightclub or, or, or gig experience when it's hard to hear one another, is that it's this one little sliver of the human experience where it's acceptable to walk up to someone who you don't even necessarily know that well, certainly who you're not dating or related to, and have your nose brush the hair away from their ear and be so close to them that they can feel your breath on their skin and then scream at the top of your lungs into their ear. And the cool kids who've done this a lot would, would actually know, I, I was always amazed when this would happen to me, they'd kind of close your ear first and then shout at you and then you'd be able to hear. Um, it took me a few weeks to work out that that was the trick. Um, but, but I just used to find this kind of intoxicating. Like these people who in normal life, I'd have no right to just walk up and just be that close to them and just whisper into their ear. At a nightclub, it was like acceptable. I just think this is really amazing. This is like a kind of secret cheat code to getting close to people. You just get them somewhere loud and then you kind of have the right. But of course, it's not really whispering, is it? It's just how you do your best to try and be heard. We're going to talk about a whisper uh, in quite a lot of detail this morning because this, I think, is the most important, most profound whisper that's ever been uttered into somebody else's ear in human history. 
the, the context is, this is, this is a moment that's going down in, in the Sinai Peninsula. So we're talking about Elijah on the side of a mountain having a conversation with God. It's a story some of you will, will know or have heard something about. There's a guy who ends up having a showdown with God, uh, and if you know it, there's an earthquake, there's fire, there's wind, and God's not in any of that. God is in the gentle whisper, the still small voice. You might have heard those kinds of comments before. And there's a very big but, but God was in the whisper because all the other stuff was much more impressive and probably much more what Elijah wanted in that moment. So we're going to look at that story. But the context for that story is really quite important. Uh, This one man's encounter with God, I think, maybe one of the most instructive moments in all of Scripture. If, if when God wants to tell us how He wants to, us to talk to Him, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. If the Lord's Prayer is God saying, children, this is how I want you to talk to me, then Him dealing with Elijah on the mountain, I think, is God going, children, this is how I want to talk to you. So this is worth listening to. And the context helps us to pick up some details in this story. Okay, So Elijah's a prophet, a really amazing prophet, who's dealing with Israel's most evil king, Ahab, and he has some competition for that title. I mean, it's incredible to even get that title. But Ahab and his infamous wife, Jezebel, have turned the people of God into a pagan worshiping, just embarrassing lot, doing dreadful, I mean, disgusting ways of worshiping Baal and these pagan gods. Uh, And Elijah is kind of this lone voice shouting out, no, this is not okay, no, this is not okay. At some point, actually, Elijah, having had a run in or two with Ahab, says, you know what? No more rain until you sort yourself out. And prophesies a drought, which comes to pass. Years have gone by, there's been no rain. Brooks have dried up, there's no water to be found. Animals can't um, graze. The economy is in absolute tatters. Only way Elijah survives this whole thing is by sheltering with a widow in a town called Zarephath and causing her, uh, her, her oil to never run out and her flour to never run out, like miraculously, so they can just keep making bread. It is incredibly tough in Israel at this moment. Um, there's a recession like, like we can't even begin to grasp. And then Elijah decides, okay, it's time to meet with Ahab and bring this whole thing to a head. Uh, and so under the instruction of God, he gets hold of Ahab and says, bring all of, of Israel to Mount Carmel. We're going to do a showdown and settle this once and for all. Are you people going to keep following Baal and these pagan practices or are you going to come back to your God who is jealous for you? And this is an unbelievable moment, okay? I've been on, Mount, on Mount Carmel. I've, I've seen this spot. It's pretty incredible anyway. You've got views to the Mediterranean Sea and over back towards Jerusalem and out towards Galilee. And you can imagine how this would have been a natural space for, um, for many to gather and to see some big showdown go on. And if you uh, need reminding, Elijah tells the prophets of Baal to set up an altar and put a uh, sacrifice on it. Then Elijah sets up an altar and puts a sacrifice on it. Let's the guys from, from Baal go first and says, well, if your God is real, let him send down fire. You, you may know this. Uh, and, and they fail. They try all day. They can't get this imaginary God to um, consume the offering. Then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah, to add drama, pours water in a drought, pours water all over the offering, all over the wood, all over the kindling. Uh, so there's no way this thing could light. And then he says, okay, Lord God, please. And this is quite interesting. He says, please vindicate me and, and let everyone know that I am actually your prophet and also vindicate yourself and let them all know that you are God. And before I get to the cool conclusion of that story, which you may know, it is interesting to me that Elijah keeps on pressing home this issue that he's the only one left. 
I'm the only one. I'm the only prophet left. Everyone else has given up. Even though if you go and read a chapter before this, he's just had a conversation uh, with a guy called Obadiah who's done like a Schindler's List thing and kept a hundred of the Lord's prophets safe during the course of Ahab's insane, murderous rage against the people of God. So I don't know if you know anyone who thinks things are worse than they really are. Do you know anyone like that? Are you maybe that person who, who very quickly gets themselves into kind of me against the world, no one really understands, I'm the only one. Well, if you can resonate with Elijah, or if you know anyone who can, uh, the story becomes even more profound for us. Because Elijah's that guy. As much as he's incredible, and he's obedient to God, and he's full of faith, it's possible to have a lot of faith, a lot of good theology, and still have something out of kilter, something, uh, that's an old-fashioned way of saying, something um, sort of misaligned in your way of relating to yourself and God. And I think we see Elijah already has this little out of alignment thing going on inside himself. I'm the only one, it's me against the world. And uh, so he stands up there solo and God does come through in that moment and fire comes down and burns up the offering, burns up the wood, licks up all the water, scorches the stones. Incredible, incredible to have had the opportunity to sit on that spot and look at some of those old stones going, I wonder if this is one of the ones that the fire touched. It's an amazing moment. And then Elijah says, okay, make your choice. You've seen who's real and who's not. And he prays for the drought to end. He prays and prays and prays. And then eventually um, there's evidence of cloud on the horizon and a wind starts to blow. And Elijah's very excited. Elijah thinks surely this will have solved the problem. God has been powerful. God has demonstrated his power. And now there's a wind starting to blow like mad and there's a storm on the way and the drought's about to break. And he's so excited about this that he runs down the mountain and runs a marathon distance to Jezreel, the capital um, of the kingdom, where, where Jezebel was and where Ahab was. Uh, he runs faster than a, ch- a chariot all the way to Jezreel. I think excited to see the change. I think he's expecting, well, God has been powerful. I've been vindicated. Everything will be fine now. Unfortunately for Elijah, it doesn't work that way. Not then, not ever. You know, Jesus has to go to quite a, quite often he has to offend people with this, when they say, give us a sign, give us a sign that, and then we'll believe in you. And one of the first amazing takeaways for me from this story is that God doesn't respond to need. He responds to faith. And so anytime people are going, well, give us a sign and we'll believe. Anytime we assume that some big show of force from God will be the thing that sorts everybody out, we almost always end up disappointed. It doesn't work like that. When God reveals his person, it works. When God reveals his power, stuff happens, but it very rarely changes the human heart. It's his person we need, not his power. It's it's not an encounter with the power. It's intimacy with the person, right? That is what works. And so Elijah, unfortunately, with this little misalignment, it's worse than I thought. I'm all on my own. The power of God will solve things. Races off to Jezreel, and lo and behold, Jezebel doubles down. I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna snuff you out. I'm not interested in your tricks that you performed up on the mountain. And he loses his nerve and he loses his hope. He's depressed and he heads off into the wilderness. That's where we find him when he has this massive conversation with God that we're about to study. So if you just summarize what's going on, we've got an economy in tatters. We've got a government that can't be trusted. We've got a weak church in that moment. These prophets who've been rescued. They don't, we don't hear them doing very much. They may say they're for God, but they're not really a force to be reckoned with at that moment. You've got bad people not doing what they're supposed to do. And you've got Elijah starting to go, well, in this, against these odds, what's the point? 
if you know anyone who's tired, anyone who's depressed, anyone who resonates with any of those, I won't say that's all the case, but has things that they're disappointed about with the government or the economy or their fellow countrymen or the church or whatever, this is a story to pay attention to. And if none of those quite catches, if none of those categories quite captures where you're at, we're also going to get an incredible answer to the question, what are you even here for? Which is a really good reason to pay attention to this story. So let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah has shuffled off into the wilderness, depressed and exhausted. An angel wakes him up, says, you've got a little further to go. God's going to talk to you on Mount Sinai, gives him some food. And this is now, he's reached the mountain where God is going to talk to him. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Listen carefully to Elijah's answer. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I think he's been practicing that answer. Right? He's, he's, he's got a little speech ready for God because um, he feels like God owes him something. And some of the language here is really interesting. I've been jealous for the Lord of hosts. He's used God's military title there. It's good theology. It's not wrong. God is powerful. He is the Lord of heaven's armies. He is the mighty one. But that appears to be, please listen to this carefully, that appears to be Elijah's primary way of relating to God as powerful, as the Lord of armies. Interesting. He sees himself as very alone and he sees God as very powerful and he thinks the power of God's going to sort this problem out. But the power of God's not going to sort out his loneliness or the problems in all the hearts of the people in his country. He says, I've been jealous. I've been working hard. I've been zealous. I've been single-minded. I've been really obedient to this powerful God. And all these others, they've forsaken you. They're they're wretched. They're evil. They're they're rubbish. They should be dealt with severely. But it doesn't seem like you're interested. And now they're going to kill me. So God says from verse 11, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. All right, so let's just see what's happening here because you've heard it said, you know, God was not in the earthquake, not in the wind, not in the fire, but was in the whisper. But let's just be clear. God is also doing those other things. God does pass by. The wind, the fire, the earthquake, all these things we're going to see, that's not separate from God. That's not some random meteorological event that happened. God is doing that stuff. He is powerful. So he's making a very, very deliberate point when he says, yeah, I can do those things, but I'm not in those things. Okay, there's some things God can do in your life that he won't be in. There's something that he wants to be in that you really need. So behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind, tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds with the same rehearsed answer. I've been jealous for you, mighty God. I've been doing all this stuff. Everyone else has forsaken you. I'm all alone and now they want to kill me as well. First comment. God asks him what he's doing there. He replies, I've been trying to do mighty things for a mighty God. And God is clearly unimpressed with that answer. And... Wrong answer. 
because he asks him again and then goes through this whole process of revealing the whisper, not the power. So could it be that if your answer to the question, what are you doing here? If God had to grab you this morning and say, what are you doing on earth? What are you here for? You could answer with some good theology and some good obedience. God, you are mighty and powerful and I'm trying to do things for you. And God could go, yeah, that's true, but that's not what you're here for. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. That is not what you're here for. I think God is trying to force the issue and prove to Elijah and prove to all of us, you're on this planet for intimacy. You're on this planet for intimacy with God. You're not on this planet for all the other stuff that is good theology and that flows out of intimacy with God, but is secondary, the primary thing you are here for. What are you here for? To be with you, God, to be intimately connected to you, to enjoy your presence. That is your primary purpose on earth. And if I'm going to lead with some good theology about how glorious and holy and powerful God is and make my whole relationship with him based on that, I'm very likely, like Elijah, to burn out. I'm very likely to burn out. I'm very likely to get disappointed that the things I'm putting all my hope in, when they don't come to pass the way I wanted them to come to pass, I'm going to question him. I'm going to get him even more irritated with my fellow countrymen. I'm going to get burnt out. And I'm going to possibly need God to come grab me and say, Paul, why are you here? Were you here to do great things for me and to see me do great things for you? Or were you just here? Of course, you were just here for me. That was the point. I think it's interesting, the other stuff, by the way, that God shows Elijah and then shows that he's not in. You know, Elijah probably wanted the fire. Elijah had just had some quite good experiences with fire, remember? He had set up this whole showdown. Fire of God was going to sort everybody out. Fire of God was going to convince everyone. Funny, not only was God not in the fire with Elijah, it didn't work on the people either, did it? God showed up in fire, and Israel was not really changed from her hardness of heart. I wonder also, Elijah would have been keen on the wind. You know, he just had good experiences of that. The drought ends with the wind and rain and a storm. I wonder if Elijah is going, well, God, if you're not going to come in fire and, and burn away all the sin, perhaps you're going to come in, in rain and wind and just provide lavishly. And God's going, yeah, I can provide. I can send wind and rain. I'm not in it. And funny, it didn't work on Ahab or Jezebel either. I'm like, yeah, cool. So God's ended the drought. Our economy's starting to pick up. Didn't change their hearts. Earthquakes are really interesting. If you have a quick search of earthquakes in Scripture, you'll start to get the impression that they almost always seem to be attached to the judgment of God. I'm pretty sure Elijah would have been keen on that one as well. God, the mighty judge, the holy one, you're going to come and judge all these people who are evil and wrong, sort out all the injustice. Perhaps you're super excited for God to sort out some injustice. He's going, I do. I do that. I can do that. Not in it. And funny, it didn't turn out that he was in it for Elijah, and it often doesn't turn out that he's in it in society. God does regularly do some mighty stuff to step in on behalf of his people. We've seen in all these but God testimonies, he does some wonderful things for individuals. He does some incredible things for corporate groups of people, and we ought to have faith for that stuff. But if that's my primary way of relating to God, if that's what I'm hoping he's in, bad news. You're going to get disappointed. He's not in that stuff. He's in the whisper. There's some things I want to tell you about a whisper, the mechanics of how a whisper works. Do you know that a whisper is really, it's an interesting way of making a sound because you don't use your vocal cords when you make a whisper. When you're whispering, what that literally is, is just your breath being shaped by your mouth. 
You bypass your vocal cords altogether, which is why when I'm sitting in my son's room in the evenings trying to put, sort of put him to sleep, uh, we have some little rituals, uh, pray some things over him. Um, and then sometimes when he asks, uh, I'm embarrassed to now have you, you all imagining this, but he asked me to sing some stuff, okay? Uh, and so I'm, I'm occasionally in his room trying to sing him some lullaby, uh, which I suppose shouldn't be embarrassing. But what's embarrassing about it is that I try to do it in a whisper because his sister next door will be going to sleep and our house is made of such incredibly flimsy walls that you can hear everything we say from one room to the next. So I'm trying to sing to David in a whisper, just as an experiment at some point. Try singing in a whisper. It's very frustrating because you can't make notes. You think you're making notes. In your mind, you think you're singing a melody, but because you're not using your vocal cords, it's actually like, eh, 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 same note the whole way through. Um, so I don't know if maybe David goes to sleep just because he gives up on, oh, poor dad, you know, he can't sing. Um, but a whisper is literally your breath being shaped by your mouth. So God has said to Elijah, I'm not in the fire. I'm not in the wind. I'm not in the earthquake. And then God leans so close to Elijah to communicate with him and strips his power out so completely that he even strips out his vocal cords from the conversation. Let's not forget what God's vocal cords can do. Speaks planets, speaks storms quietened. God's voice is potent. And so he even strips that out. You're not here for an encounter with my power. You're here for intimacy with my person. So I'm gonna whisper to you and you're gonna have to lean super close, so close that you let my breath impact your eardrum and you're able to sense what's in my heart. Whispers are incredibly intimate. And if I'm on this earth for intimacy with God, am I doing that classic marriage thing of going, God, can we start speaking? And then I wander off, no, 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 no. And don't listen, can't hear. And my father is waiting there, whispering to me, but I've just gotten too distracted, too far away to be able to pick up the impression of his breath on my spirit. I've asked Kevin Robertson to teach us a little bit about how we hear the whisper of God. He is a, he's an amazing man. He's, a, uh, he's been a chaplain at, at Hilton College. He is an Anglican priest and runs a church in Durban and is a deep thinker on how to use deliberate practices to find the voice of God and the whisper of God. He's taught me a whole lot. I've really benefited in brief moments from sort of sitting under his teaching. And so I asked him and I was really grateful to get a little bit of time from him uh, to describe what he thinks is going on here and what we can do to hear from the whisper of God. Enjoy this. This is a great gift for us. So Kevin, we've been talking about Elijah and particularly about his encounter with God and most specifically his encounter with God's whisper of all things. Um, what is it about a whisper? What do you think is important about the fact that God chose to whisper to Elijah? I think for me the main important thing is that God wants to be intimate in a whisper and we need to get rid of the distractions. Okay. And so for me that Elijah story is about Elijah just getting rid of all the things that were distracting him from God. Um, the busyness of his life, the burnout, the noisy things on the mountainside. And when all of those had run their course, he then was ready to hear God. And I think that's so true in our lives. We need to get rid of those things that distract us, those egos that we've got our agendas going so that we can just be still mm. and begin to hear what God is whispering to us in the intimacy of his love for us. You've, as far as I can tell, chased this practice of being still 
I think, Paul, firstly, if I just start with a quote, one of my favorite quotes is that God's first language is silence. Okay. And the person who wrote that was St. John of the Cross many centuries ago. More recently, Thomas Merton added, and everything else is lost in translation. And so my desire has been trying to cultivate the silence and we need solitude with that, which is what Elijah was experiencing. Um, in order to be still properly and hear from God. And I've tried to follow the spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude, and there are many ways of doing that. And I think uh, there's many um, challenges in our Christian journey to be still and know God in that stillness. That's so, that's so countercultural these days. I mean, I think many people hearing the idea of solitude and silence would just go, I just can't even imagine doing that. Is it really that important? I think so. Certainly I've found for myself, you know, when I've tried to listen for God for big decisions in my life, what I've realized is that what's filling my mind is me, my ideas, my thoughts, my agendas, etc. And if I'm going to be working with God rather than just busy for God, then how do I connect with God? Most of us are familiar with wanting to have some kind of, we call it a quiet time to start our day very often. How quiet is our quiet time? I think we fill it with busy things because otherwise we don't know what to do with ourselves. Mm. Why can't we just be there resting in God's presence, just still in the love of God flowing in and through us? Then we will hear that whisper, that gentle whisper of God just encouraging us, challenging us, uh, showing us what to do next and how to be as his, his beloved child. You know, your series, But God, speaks true to me because in my career choices, it's always been, but God. Mm -hmm. I've had my ideas and then God comes in with his own twist, which have always been obviously the better ones. I had just started as a new minister in White River. I had my own church and I was keen and excited. Two years into that, on a Sunday afternoon after a busy time at church, I got a phone call from Hilton College, which was my old school. And they said to me, do you want to come as the new chaplain? I didn't even know the position was available. And I said, no, thank you. I'm in a new job here. I've got some plans. I think God's really working with me here. And I put the phone down and I went out. I think my wife was in the garden. I said, you know, a strange thing. I've had this phone call. And um, she, in a sense, was the but God at that point for me. And sometimes we need other people to do that. She said, don't rush, just pause and let's listen carefully to see what might be happening. Mm -hmm. And I had clearly there loud the excitement of the new job, a year or two into it, really laying down visions and, and all those things we do as, as, as keen for God. But what was God saying? And, and so we paused and we began to journey with the possibility that God might be saying, here's a move for you. And for me, it was the right move. I was trained as a school teacher and it was a chop opportunity to put my teaching and my ministry together. And I spent 19 wonderful years on that job until God began to whisper that it was time to do something radically new. Give us a final thought, I suppose, if, if, you, if there's a moral out of this or there's a kind. If you look at the, the writers who talk about what we call spiritual disciplines, things that we need to do in order to grow as Christians, but all the, the writers who write about this at any depth, they always start with solitude and silence. And you need those two to cultivate all the others. They're the kind of bedrock and it's, it's, that's my challenge for me. I'm not good at it. I like talking about it, but so are we often about a lot of things, but doing it is something I still struggle with.
learning to be quiet, to be still, I like to find excuses for not cultivating silence in my own life. And in doing that, I miss that quiet, gentle, intimate whisper of God. I'm fascinated by the kinds of things that distract us. So, I mean, firstly, we have to get our heads around the idea that the God of the universe, the glorious one, longs for intimacy with us. That in itself is, is an incredibly privileged position that we find ourselves in. So, so perhaps that's just the thing that you actually need to camp on this morning. Um, you know, throughout Scripture, God has this, like, cry, I want to be in the middle of my people. The whole way he sets up the people in the wilderness when they're traveling from Egypt to the promised land is the tabernacle in the center with all the tribes arranged around it. They cry, they will be my people and I will be their God. Echoes from the Old Testament through the New Testament through the revelations of John at the end. God is longing for that. Uh, Zephaniah 3 is one of these amazing moments where God just ex- sort of exposes his heart and says, you know, I, I wanna be with you. And it goes on to say, I'm going to rejoice over you with gladness. I'm going to quiet you with my love. I'm going to exult over you with loud singing. God is making himself very vulnerable to us, longing for intimacy with us. You know, Jesus, in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, where we eavesdrop on the most incredible conversation between the Father and the Son, says, Lord, make them one with us, just as you and I are one, let them be one with us. God's heart is aching for intimacy with you. So ma'am, why are you here? Any answer that has to do with God's power and him meeting your needs in a powerful way is the wrong answer, even if it's good theology. Because the primary purpose of your life is to connect with and be intimate with and be satisfied by the heart of this amazing God. So that's idea number one. But then Kevin moved us on from just the concept of intimacy to the concept of distraction. I've got a prop here, you may have noticed. Uh, Throughout the But God series, we've been sort of populating our lounge, talking about how God, one of the things he does is close stuff for us, not just open things that you can trust him to close some things. We've spoken about how he can be present in the midst of suffering, and that's the X factor that can change wherever you find yourself. We've spoken about his grace that is sufficient. Even in your weakness, he can be made perfect. Today, we end with the most important feature of any lounge, the music, right? The soundtrack, the the background noise. And when you start thinking about distractions, and Kevin was already alluding to this, your instinct might be to assume um, that the distractions are all external to you, okay? So I've had this weekend without my children and uh, and my wife kindly has taken taken them away. Uh, And as much as it's easy for me to say I miss them, you might assume, I assumed, that... um, that would be the space I required to spend time with God. And I have spent time with God this weekend, but you know, it wasn't because my kids were away or because my phone didn't ring. The external things that you think are distracting you from God, well, they are. There'll be some obvious stuff filling you. I've preached about this before, you know, the the amount of noise that grabs our attention. You might assume that your attention is the obstacle. If you could just remove the stuff that's grabbing your attention you'd be able to find this intimacy with God. But Kev mentioned it. The thing that fills our minds more than what's out there is what's inside. The huge distraction is not just the speaker. Work with me on this illustration, right? It's not just the the booming voice of the world that's trying to grab your attention. Of course it is. And you're gonna have to learn how to manage that. But even when you succeed, even when you're all by yourself, even when it's absolutely quiet, you still have your needs 
your fears, your assumptions about who God is. How about this one? You even have your memories of what God has done before, which in our largest case were actually a red herring. Yeah, I'd seen fire and wind and all this other stuff. You might have all the assumptions about what God is like, who you are, what he requires of you, your insecurities, the problems you see in the world. Lord, if you could just sort out my church and my pastor. Fair enough, you might probably need to pray that prayer. But Lord, if you would just sort out my family. Lord, if you would just sort out the government, if you would just sort out the economy, if you would just end corona. Worthwhile prayers to pray. Good theology, he can, but God. But if that's what fills my dialogue, powerful God, big problems, poor me, can't hear the whisper. And so part of the art of intimacy with God is turning this off. But the the more difficult art, the one I'm trying to figure out, is how to turn the other one off, how to quiet it inside here, because the wind and the earthquake and the raging noise is going on in here. You know, I um, have been having lots of conversations with friends of mine recently who, particularly when they've been suffering and struggle, we tend to retreat into Lord of Heaven's armies kind of talk. It's just so, for some reason, it's more comforting. Uh, it makes things a little easier. It, it, it absolves us of responsibility to go, well, God is clearly at work. God is mighty and doing big things sovereignly. And that is good theology. Let's be clear, that is true. Right now, you can be certain God is doing something to his church that no human is in charge of, and it's beautiful what we're gonna see him do. He's doing something to society. I think we're gonna see new idols rise up, but we're also gonna see old idols crumble and some really good things in society as a result of this. We're gonna see all kinds of good things in the midst of the struggle. God is doing things. But if I retreat into sovereign Lord of Heaven's armies kind of talk, then I wonder if I'm just wandering off to the kitchen going, God, talk to me, what was it you wanted to say? And he's shouting from another room. And you know what he's shouting? He's shouting, I'm not gonna give you the earthquake. I'm assuming I know what God is saying, but just allow me to be maybe blasphemous for a second because I've experienced this often. I don't think God will do the thing you want for very long if it's stopping you from having intimacy with him. I don't think God is prepared to, to overlook our faulty assumptions about what he's like for very long before he turns off the taps on the power. And it's the most loving thing he can do. Do you know what I'm trying to say? This is the conversation I keep having with friends of mine. They're waiting for the mighty arm of God. They're shrugging their shoulders about the fact that it doesn't seem to be happening in the way they want it to happen. And I keep asking them and keep asking myself, is God ever really going to treat me the way I consistently want him to treat me if what I'm expecting is big, powerful, Lord of Heaven's armies to just flex his muscles? That's not what I want my relationship with my son to be like. If David grows up believing dad is just powerful and on his own mission, and David's job is to just try to do things to please me or do things on my behalf, and he allows that to rob him of intimacy with me, I would stop, I would hold back everything, I would end his allowance if I had to, I would turn the lights off at home, I would do whatever it took. I would slash the tires on his car. My mom used to threaten to come and slash the tires on my car a lot, if that was for other reasons. She's a wonderful, godly lady, but, um, wouldn't it make sense? I long for intimacy with this kid. I don't want to control his life. I don't just want obedience from him for the rest of his life. 
I don't just want his respect. That's lovely. I want his heart. And if he starts to drift from me because he assumes some technically accurate but imbalanced, misaligned things about me, I would stop whatever I need to stop to get his heart back. Think about it another way. Is there anything that my kids could do for me that I would be so pleased with that I'd be prepared to put up with the fact that we have no intimacy or relationship? If my little girl Beth, when she grows up, does a lot of things for me, but fundamentally is not connected to me, is there anything she could do that is such great service, such great obedience, that I'd be like, cool, that's better than having a relationship with her? Of course not. And yet we think that there's stuff we can do for this mighty God. And we have a lot of ideas about the things that God should be doing for us. But God is in the whisper. But he wants relationship with you and intimacy with me more than any of the other stuff. If you believe you're on earth to glorify God, you're not wrong. But you glorify him most by enjoying intimacy with him. If you think you're on earth to fix what's broken and fight injustice, you're not wrong. But if that's coming out of any other source than your intimacy with God, it's unsustainable. You will become burnt out or bitter with the people you're trying to help. If you think you're on earth to release prophetic wisdom and kingdom economy into the businesses of Durban, you're not wrong. But if you're doing that for any other reason than you have tasted and seen that God is so good that even if not a cent passes through your bank account again, somehow he is satisfying to you, if it's not a natural overflow of the intimacy you have with the Father, it's just noisy, clanging cymbals and gongs. If you believe you're on earth to get lost people saved, again, you're not wrong. But if you don't understand that that is a means to a bigger end, to introducing lost children to intimacy with God, getting them close enough to their Father that they can hear the whisper of God, and most importantly, if you've become so busy doing that that you yourself no longer have time to hear the whisper, you are selling something you're not even enjoying yourself. It will run out. You will burn out, just like Elijah did. All the other stuff we're supposed to be doing, healing the sick, bringing the kingdom to earth, all the churching that you've been told is part of healthy Christian life, you're not wrong. But if I'm starting from this position of Lord of heaven's armies, encounter with the power of God, I'm missing intimacy with the person of God. And I think God might start asking you, why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? Quite a lot. And letting you know I'm not in the power you're expecting and hoping until eventually you and I are able to come to the same realization Elijah had to, which is that he's in the whisper. And I need to position myself and take whatever is inside my head out and turn whatever's outside my head down enough to be able to feel his breath on my spirit and react to his promptings. As we close, what do you do with this? Okay, so what does it look like when someone has experienced the whisper of God? What, what are the Next things we're likely to see. Let's go back and finish the story with Elijah. Uh, go back up onto that mountainside, that windswept, fire-scorched, shaken, earthquake, broken mountainside. He's now heard the whisper of God. And then God says to him from verse 15, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you'll anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you will anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint to be the, the next prophet in your place. And then this big fight that you've been wanting to fight, 
They're going to win it, not you. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall be Jehu put to death. The one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that haven't bowed to Baal, every mouth that's not kissed him. In other words, it's not as bad as you think. It's not just those 100 prophets that had already been saved in this style. There's 7,000 in the land who actually haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. You haven't got as much reason for self-pity as you thought. Oh, and by the way, let's stop talking about all the things that are wrong and start to talk about some of the good things I am gonna do. There's this person to anoint. There's this person to anoint. There's this thing to breathe on. There's this thing to declare. Oh, and finally, Elijah, go back where you came. The job hasn't changed. Elijah arrives to this moment with God with all these problems. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. You need to do something different. And at the end of a whisper, God basically says, Back to work, the call's still the same. But now instead of talking about all the things that are wrong, we're gonna talk about all the things that are right. Instead of talking about all the things that we need God to fix, we're gonna talk about all the things that he is already doing. You see, we don't end up passive if we live in the whisper. You're gonna do just as many mighty things for God. But when I've heard the whisper of God, I get the mind of Christ. I see his strategy. I see how things look from his perspective. I realize, oh, he's got this plan going on. In another kingdom, I wasn't even expecting. The Syrian king, who would have thought that had anything to do with it? Oh, he's got 7,000 in Israel who are ready to go on his behalf? I had no idea. Oh, God has all this stuff to do? If I will prioritize hearing the whisper of God, I will come away from that experience ready to prophesy some things into life that actually God is already at work on. I'll come away ready to anoint some people to do greater things than I could ever dream of doing. I'll come away ready to partner with God with the thing he is actually up to in the city so that I can start praying the prayers he wants me to pray. God, how do I be involved? How do I support? How do I speak into life the thing that you've just revealed to me in the whisper? Kevin said, I don't want to just be busy doing things for God. I want to be working with God. Friends, I know this doesn't really translate on screen and dead air and silence is supposed to be a problem, but I'm gonna be quiet for a second. And I want you to just think, okay, in my workplace, in my marriage, in my health, as I look at society, as I listen to all these speakers blaring at me, telling me all these problems, as I listen inside my own head to all the problems I'm experiencing, my needs, my frailties, my weaknesses, my longings, my desires, all the noise that I have been bringing to God saying, We've got a problem here, God. In fact, you have a problem here, and I need your power. Can we just turn the volume down on all those things and seek the whisper of God? Oh God, I wanna crave your presence. I wanna crave intimacy with you. Anything I'm doing that's preventing me from hearing your whisper and feeling your breath. I just wanna cut out or turn the volume right down on. My friends, there is one other very important earthquake in scripture. And perhaps God wants to whisper to you about this, so maybe keep your eyes closed. I just want to describe it to you. You know, Elijah wants an earthquake, I suspect, because he wants judgment on all the wicked. My favorite earthquake, if you can have such a thing, is the one that happens at the cross of Christ. Jesus comes 
dies, and then as a side note in that incredible story, an earthquake shakes that part of the Middle East. But that earthquake doesn't bring judgment. That earthquake isn't an expression of God's anger. That earthquake splits the curtain in the temple that separates sinners like us from a holy, mighty God of heaven's armies. Anytime we want the power of God to bring judgment, to bring fairness, to fix what's wrong, let's just remember that the thing God wants most and the thing he loves to use his power for most is to make a way for us to get into his presence, to make a way to deal with our sin. Your sin has been dealt with. Your separation from God has been dealt with. You do have access. He is speaking. He's not too far away. He is whispering to you. He's not silent. He is available to you. He is accessible to you through the cross of Christ. And so God, as you whisper and as we lean closer, get our feet moving, please. Get us walking towards you. Get us changing our environment, even our internal environment. So we can take seriously this invitation to live in the whisper of the almighty God. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. I, I trust you found something in that. And we will see you, hopefully, in person somewhere next week. Otherwise, we'll be here online if you can't get to a place. Obviously, this will always be available. Um, but longing to be with you. And I trust that uh, this is a week in which you hear the whisper and feel the presence of God more intimately than ever. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like to find out more information about Olive Tree Church, please visit our website at otc.org.za or email info at otc.org.za. We hope you have an amazing week.